0: Gresham College presents Macroeconomics, Capitalism and Inequality by Professor Jagjit Chadha. Today's lecture is trying to address a topic that could itself be the subject of all my lectures over my three or four year tenure as um, the Gresham Professor. Um, and it's on inequality as much as anything else. It's a subject that's dominated debate, I think, in the last few years. And rather than giving you answers today, I haven't got to answers yet. Um, I think I'm going to try and open some questions up that hopefully you can take away with you and use for yourself to judge the debate and the quality of the debate. In fact, that's almost what I try to do in these lectures, is rather than preach, (laughs) just try to set out what I think is is a fair-minded appraisal of where the debate has got to. Um, The lecture, in a sense, is almost in honour of Tony Atkinson, who died on New Year's Day this year, who's whose work at uh, Oxford and LSE was very much behind the measurement of inequality over time. So I'll draw heavily on some of his work and I'll show you some of his charts that he's produced that anyone can access um, at the end of, towards the end of the lecture. And also I'll draw and talk about some of the work by Thomas Piketty, whose book on capital uh, or capitalism had a lot of attention a couple of years ago. And I want to see if we can draw some of these threads together to get a view as to whether capitalism leads to bad inequality or whether inequality leads to good capitalism. I, I'm not sure myself what the answers are. People in the room would have their own opinions. But let's, let's start this journey now and see where we get to at the end um, of the lecture. So I'll start with a quote from um, Tony Atkinson. This is um, in the second or third chapter of his book that was published in um, 2015 on inequality, what can be done. And it bears reading out. The concept of equality of opportunity is an attractive one, he writes. However, does it mean that inequality of outcome is irrelevant? In my view, the answer to this question is no. Inequality of outcome is still important, even for those who start from the concern for a level playing field. To see why, we need to start by noting noting that differences between the two concepts, inequality of outcome is essentially an ex ante concept before the fact, everyone should have an equal starting point, whereas much redistribution activity is concerned with ex-post outcomes. Those who think that inequality of outcome is irrelevant regard concern for ex-post outcomes as illegitimate and believe that once a level playing field for the race for life has been established, we should not inquire into the outcomes. I believe this is wrong. And I think to put some words into his mouth and I apologise if the words I put are wrong but I think there's a dynamic view here in in that if you're going to level up inequality of outcome into the next generation because there are intergenerational issues you might have to dwell quite hard on the question um, of uh, uh, sorry trying to level up inequality of of, uh, opportunity to try and level that up you need to deal with inequality and outcome because some of those things are carried over into the next generation. So to the extent to which there's intergenerational issues here that need to be addressed, I think he's arguing there is a case for some redistribution in terms of outcomes as well as ex-ante. Let's keep that in the back of our mind when we continue um, the lecture. Now, we'll know that this year represents the 10th anniversary of the start of the global financial crisis. I don't need to go through the, the particular story it happened, but clearly a part of the story was that the global financial crisis was at least triggered to some degree by the flow of savings from those parts of the world that were running current account surpluses. Um, and what those... Um, that's the, sort of talking about the, the fourth point here, I guess. And what those countries were doing was exporting goods to us, making the price of those manufactured goods cheaper than they would otherwise be. Their own populations were producing their goods that allowed their real wages to rise because they were essentially decanting jobs from the manufacturing sectors in the West, we saw wages in the manufacturing sectors in the West fall or at least not rise in the same way as they had before as the jobs were competed or decanted to the other parts of the world. So, in fact, the the other side of the financial crisis, these financial flows, was also a movement towards the equalisation of real wages for people working in industries which had nearly perfect competition. I could no longer protect my domestic industries from external trade in order for them to be competitive. I couldn't allow their wages to rise in the same way as they might have in the past. Um, That was bad for people in advanced economies who relied on those wages, but by the same token, it was good for all the people who were drawn out of poverty in the developing or emerging economies. So there's a redistributive effect from globalisation, and I think we need to remember that Um, But the process of the stagnation of real wages for manufactured wage earners has reignited an intense debate on inequality. Um, And also talk of um, Marxist warnings that capitalism is going to sow the seeds of its own destruction. It doesn't go very long before we start thinking about pools of of labour driving down wages. And of course the concern is that um, if those who are wage earners are earning an ever-smaller share of income, there's more income left for those who are owners of capital. And the question is whether that is something that's going to equilibrate or something that's ultimately going to be destructive uh, to capitalism. Please know I'm not sure I can answer that today, but this is the backdrop to the debate on inequality. And you can begin to understand the debate on inequality if you start to think about those people in their balance sheet who work um, and earn and live off their earnings... And those who have other forms of earnings, maybe own capital or land, are able to live off those. And actually, by and large, inequality can be thought of as very much driven by um, the factors of production that people own. If it's just their own labour or if it's capital and land, that puts them often in a different bracket. So we want to understand that, if we possibly can. Um, The kind of optimistic view, which I have a bullet point there as one, is that... There's a given amount of output in the economy that leads to a given amount of income and expenditure. And if interest rates can move sufficiently up or down, savings can equilibrate with investment and the market will clear. The amount of goods and services produced will be consumed and the economy will be at some full equilibrium level. Therefore, in that world, if that were true, what matters for people's standard of living is really their their wage growth, which depends upon productivity growth, which depends upon long-run growth in the economy. it's a pretty good approximation. If we want to understand how average living standards increase, what we need to understand is total factor productivity growth. And if that's the thing determining real wages, then the share of income will be fixed in terms of wages, but that income itself is growing over time with productivity. And that's the mechanism by which people are brought out of poverty. That's the optimistic view. The economy grows, and we grow along with it. Our share of the economy may be fixed, but the economy itself is growing over time through productivity. The more negative um, view is that that this process, which I've already outlined, leads to some distributional implications where it it may be possible, some people argue, for wage earners to hold an ever smaller fraction of that output, which would then mean um, they're going to be relatively poorer compared to those who own capital or land, or indeed that inequality may itself have deleterious impacts on growth, in the sense in which it leads to a fractured society that itself cannot provide the jobs required to generate the production that would then lead to the income to lead to full employment. So it leads to physios, possibly, in capitalism. So I draw um, your attention to um, an earlier Economic, political economist um, R.H. Tawney, writing in 1931, um, writing very much with, a I think, a Marxist perspective, and not one that I, I share, but it's at the point nevertheless is interesting. Um, and he says, democracy is unstable as a political system as long as it remains a political system and nothing more. Instead of being as it should be, he argues, not only a form of government, but a type of society, and a manner of life which is in harmony with that type, To make it a type of society requires an advance along two lines. It involves, in the first place, the resolute elimination of all forms of special privilege, which favour some groups and depress others. Whether their source be differences of environment, of education or of pecuniary income, it involves, in the second place, the conversion of economic power, now often an irresponsible tyrant, into a servant of society, working within clearly defined limits and accountable for its actions, to a public authority. Clearly, you've got some views there about nationalisation, I think, if I'm not reading too much into it. This was written in 1931 before that process started. But you can imagine here some sense in which uh, private activity is driven towards a state. I don't want to go into that um, particularly. But you can imagine a world in which you've got uh, new industries that are very productive, older industries that are getting less productive, that are threatened by globalisation that then, if they're able to entrench their power in the political system, may be able to prevent the generation of new industries replacing them. And that's maybe because of uh, banking forbearance and the lack of cycling of employment into new industries in the last 10 years may have been part of the process we've seen, where old industries have been frozen by low interest rates rather than their capital being regenerated to younger and new entrepreneurs. Let me after these introductory remarks, I think go on um, to further make some points as to why distributions may matter. We're familiar, or I think people here of my generation, we're familiar with people talking about policy or or the budget in terms of that mythical normal family to two carers and two children or or somebody (laughs) at the middle. That mythical being is... Even becoming even more mythical over time, it's very hard to find those kinds of families anymore. And uh, so, increasingly, people are thinking uh, about policy in terms of distributions uh, or, or people in different parts of the income level. And this idea, this this thought process, has come to a head in a lot of work done recently as people try to understand um, the vote share at last year's referendum. There's a lot of work um, been done. Let me just explain this axis. This work is done by uh, colleagues at the University of Warwick, Becker et al. And uh, what they've done here, they've done what we call a multivariate analysis. So they've taken a lot of factors, age, education levels, uh, unemployment levels, levels of recent migration, all kinds of things, to try and explain in the 600-odd regions of uh, small areas or voting areas of the UK, the vote share for leave. Now, I'm not making any statement here about what, why or whether it's a good thing to have voted to leave or not. I'm just trying to say that people are trying to understand the share rather than anything else. And what they're doing here is they're scattering. So the scatter itself is clearly a relationship between two variables, and it may not look terribly strong. But when you have a multiple regression, you put lots of variables in, you're able to condition on those other variables. And when you condition on all those variables... This particular thing seems very important to them, and the axis reads uh, education skills deprivation average rank. So, well, I, I don't mean any. It's a paper that has a measurement index of level of education skills deprivation. So it would look at um, no. You, you have a you have a measure of uh, people's um, education level. And skill level in terms of years of schooling, and depending upon the measure, you put them in the rank um, that ranges from uh, uh, minus three to plus two, and then you see the relationship between the rank in the regions of the UK against the uh, vote to leave. So it's just an index, it's not, we're not, nobody's being, in a sense, deprived to construct this index, it's a measurement of. The... Sorry? Well, it's a rank, so yes. Uh, so the zero is is uh, a median level, and um, so um, so where deprivation is less, um, we get a minus number, and people were less likely to vote for leave, and where deprivation was higher, people were more likely to vote for leave, and that's the result they had in their paper. If I may, I'll use their words: across all across the board, more deprivation is associated with a larger leave vote share or vice versa. Less deprivation is associated with a lower leave vote share. The important point to observe here, again, is that the tightest relationship between the support for, leave, for the leave side is stemming from the sub-index capturing deprivation in education and skills. So, if we want to understand the signal of the message being sent by the people after the referendum, we have to possibly understand the distribution. It won't be enough just to understand the average level of um, ...educational skills attainment. Indeed, we can go further. Um, this is some work done by my colleague... ...at the National Institute, Oriol um, Carreras. And done here is just take the income distribution... ...and split families into the bottom 10 percentile... ...all the way up to the top 10 percentile... ...and looked at what expenditure components... ...they spend um, their income on. So it make this very easy... ...if we look at the bottom 10 percentile they're spending over 20% of their income on food, drinks and clothing. And the best part of 50% if we add in housing, fuel uh, and power. And if we look at the top 10 percentile, they're spending around 20% on those two categories. Uh, That by itself is interesting. We've got some idea. Therefore, if the prices of these things change, what the impact is on their own ability to buy goods and services with the income that they have. And it turns out that the inflation shock we're about to suffer, you recall, towards the end of last year, sterling fell by some 15%. That drives up the price of imported goods and leads to a temporary inflation that we're going to see this year, probably 3% or more uh, by the end of this year. And the interesting question is, yes, that's an average inflation rate. What does it mean for these different families? And we can look at these different expenditure components and try to understand what fraction of those expenditures depend on imported goods as opposed to domestically produced goods. And it turns out that the the poorer households spend more of their income on goods that have a high import intensity compared to more well-off households. That then means that a given increase in inflation is more damaging to the income, um, to the real income of poorer households as compared to more well-off households. And, and maybe I'm going a step too far, if we imagine there was some relationship between being at the lower end of the income distribution and having a deprivation in skills and education, we then see that the people in general who voted to leave the European Union and the country in general is now going to suffer an inflation shock are going to be more worse off as a result of that choice in the short run than those who tended to vote to stay in and I'm not therefore saying it was a mistake to vote that way I'm simply describing the outcome that we need to understand Um, that's going to be uh, more damaging for people who are poorer and this is the kind of calculation that economists are concerned about it's a question of the distribution if we were just interested in the median we'd be looking at some point here but that doesn't capture the story for us We can go on further in fact um, Chancellor Hammond's First, and um, he said, final autumn statement uh, in November, restarted. To, excuse me. Um, a depiction of policy again, not using that mythical household of two, uh, two carers and two children, but to look at the impact of the policies announced on this same decal. I can see that the impacts of the policy announced in this uh, in a particular year um, have. Positive effects in the, the lower-income groups and more negative effects at the higher-income groups. I'm not going to talk about the magnitude or whether it's important. I'm saying that increasingly we have to think about policy in terms of distributional effects, not just, again, at the median. I have to think about the way that works. Now, it matters um, very much that we... Um, think hard about the um, excuse me, think hard about the um, average but the average masks a considerable amount of um, individual variance what economists tend to work with is something called the representative agent and it's a little bit like the family I just described, it's a construct it's an imaginary construct at the median, Um, those two carers and two agents, and we think in terms of that average person all the time. Um, But that average person may mask a considerable degree of heterogeneity, heterogeneity, and I want to just illustrate that with some simple maths, if I can. Now, let's suppose what matters to the individual um, is... Excuse me. I'll do this in two steps. Matters to the individual is their average consumption of the representative agent. And imagine this representative agent is a construct of two households. Household one and household two. Just two. So rather than looking at one or two, if I'm a typical macroeconomist, I just look at the average. That's all I care about. So I just concentrate on the average. So the utility, how well off these households feel, will be a function in their average level of consumption and will reduce in the variance of that consumption. For a given level of consumption, if it becomes more variable, I feel less well-off than if it's less variable. Now, if the representative agent, as I said, is a a construct of two actual households, 1 and 2, we'll know that the utility of this representative agent is actually the sum of consumption of household 1 and consumption of household 2, plus the variance of these two households is what matters. Now, the variance of these two households is actually the sum of the variance of each household household 1 and household 2 plus twice the co-variation of household 1 and 2 so it's entirely possible if this co-variation is negative here the variance of the representative agent might fall because this co is negative and yet the variance of each individual household may have risen therefore analyzing the representative agent may not allow us to capture what's happening in the individual household level and that may matter very much for the individual household so we may have to think a lot harder about the uh, average now let me illustrate this with a chart to make the same point and that will make it hopefully um, something that's very clear let's suppose household one um, is owning capital and interest rates are falling so that this household feels wealthier and as a result, its consumption starts to rise. Let's suppose at the same time, household two depends on wages and this process has driven down the wages of household two and its consumption is therefore lower. The average, of course, is this point here. And if I study the average, it may well look as though the average is better off over time. And I may not think there's any need for any policy response. It looks like things are getting better. But the negative relationship is such that these guys are tremendously better off, and these guys are, at least for some fraction of this period, worse off. Let's assume there's some policies that converge later on, but let's just take this momentary point here. Now, it might be that these guys that are tr- tremendously worse off will need some policy attention, that we'd be ignoring if we're not looking inequality and concentrating only on this average now macroeconomists would tend to ignore the question of distribution by arguing that there was risk, risk sharing by which I mean household one and household two had somehow written a contract with each other that said if I got a good shock I would share it with you in terms of the deviation from the mean and if I got a bad shock I would trust you to give me the money because I know in the future it could go the other way around. A moment's thought will tell you that's not something that's very enforceable. And so over time, people may be turned to the state as an imperfect insurance mechanism, rather so through taxes or redistribution or education. And these are, in a sense, all mechanisms that have either ex-ante or ex-post risk sharing attached to them. So when Tony Axon talks about creating a level playing field, either an ex-ante or in ex-post sense, he's talking about mechanisms that enforce risk sharing. Now they're not perfect. And because they're not perfect, we have to think hard about the distribution. If I may, I'll follow up with one more example. Then we'll look at some nice charts. Some more nice charts. So, um, here we have interest rates. And here we have people I'm going to call borrowers. A little bit like... Not those little people in TV. I mean, people who are borrowing in order to finance their marginal consumption. Um, you can think of them as like these guys. They need to borrow to get to that consumption level. And these guys you can think of as savers. They're saving excess. And these borrowers have uh, increasing demand. They're going to borrow more when interest rates are lower. That's all we have to know. Savers... We'll save more when interest rates are higher. And if the market clears, as I said some moments ago, savings will equal the amount that needs to be borrowed and the market will clear at some consumption level. Now, we start from that point and let's suppose um, there's some cost of the savers and borrowers finding each other. Just some hidden cost. You have to set up a bank. We have to stand in the street till you find someone and that's all costly. It's not a costless interchange. If it's not a costless interchange and the cost change from zero to something let's call this a wedge we can also think of this the margin between risk free interest rates and the rates that we borrow at in the marketplace if I go to the bank and ask for money without security they're going to want to charge me what 10% or something because the bank is borrowing at a quarter of a percent so they're making quite a good turn on that that's the turn I'm talking about here and if we go to this world here from this world here what you'll notice is that the consumption of the borrowers has fallen from this point to this point here. Their consumption has gone down. The savings allocated from the savers has also fallen, which means that their consumption has gone up. They don't have to save so much anymore. It induces a negative relationship. This increase in the wedge has led to the consumption of borrowers falling and the consumption of savers rising. Exactly the negative relationship I'm talking about. On average, the level of consumption is the same. But these guys are worse off and these guys, arguably, are better off. And that might have distributional consequences. So if we start to say that banks have to be more careful in how they lend, that's something that may impact on borrowers or people who want to buy their first house, for example, whatever else it might be. And that may be another factor in explaining the general level of dissatisfaction. If things are harder for poorer people to do things than they were before. So there's my set of illustrations. Let's go to some pretty charts. These um, first two charts are uh, from Piketty, and they relate to the US, and this is income inequality, and I just want to show some long-run trends. See if we can extract some stories from it that make sense to us um, as as, as a bunch of people. Um, Just in case you can't read it, This is the share of the top decal in national income. So you take the top 10% of people and you ask what share of overall income do they get? You can see when this data starts in 1910, it's about 40%. And you can see during the 20s um, and by the start of World War II, it was about 45%. You get this large fall to around 30% where it stabilised in what we might think of as the golden period of post-war growth and then from 1980 onwards you get this climb from just under 35 up to about 50% which is adjusted a little bit after the financial crisis let me just make one point that a lot of people make in error the families here are not the same as the families here it's not the same people All they're doing every year in time is asking ourselves, if we were in the top 10%, how much of overall income would we get? It's not saying that we're not tracking the same top 10% from 1910 and asking how much they get today. It might sound obvious, but it's a very important point. Because you can do work to understand how much of the previous generation's income explains the next generation's income. And that work suggests it's about 30%. So that means that if we go from point to point, only 30%, if the numbers are right, okay, everything is estimated with some error, but if the numbers are right, the set of families here are only represented by 30% of them are still in place here. And you don't have to raise 30% to a very high power to get to zero. So despite the fact we may be concerned in any one cross-section of a high fraction of people uh, sorry, a small fraction of people holding a relatively high level of the overall income distribution. We need to remember that those people are churning year on year. That's a statistic that is not typically shown at the same time. It, it ought. Please. Is that specific to the US, please? Ge- ge- there's some general work trying to understand these things, but of course the work depends very much on data availability. So it's very much dependent on advanced to country analysis. But typically, you'll find I've looked at a number of studies, and my kind of look at the meta number is 30%. Well, I mean, what, what's interesting is the way it's very difficult, it's quite difficult to drop there. It happens to be a lot. Mm. it's actually quite difficult yeah. to talk to her in society. I, I, I understand we all want it to be difficult. Uh, what well, do we want it? I, I, I think that this work looks at the intergenerational mobility, so it does, does look at how much of the previous generation's income explains your particular generation's income. It's a number that's less than a half, it seems to me. But you're right, there is some persistence. For that the same token, we can um, look at the share of wealth held by uh, the top 10% in the US from 1810 to 2010. There aren't many data points. We need to be careful. There's one data point, 1810, another one in 1850. Um, and so the, the top 10% were possibly owning as much as 80% of income at around the turn of the century. So similar processes of it falling or at least stabilising in the post-war period and some gradual small increase in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, to around 60% to 70% of overall wealth. And you can replicate that for the top 1%. You see a similar pattern essentially shifted down. So by the end of the period, the top 1% seem to be only about 30% of overall wealth. And again, the same point stands as before. These aren't the same people. This is whoever happens to be in the one ten 10 percent at any particular time. So the argument made uh, by Piketty and the the followers, is that the capital share in income will tend to rise inexorably, which will mean that those people who own capital are going to get increasingly wealthy compared to everyone else in the economy. Um, Now, the way you calculate the income shares is to remember that there are three factors of production, essentially capital, labour and land, um, driven by total factor productivity. And the share in national income accruing to each factor of production is simply determined by the return to each factor of production um, multiplied by the quantity of each factor employed. So if you employ more and more capital and it has a higher and higher rate of return, the fraction of income that accrues to capital will be higher. So simply speaking, and there's an example here I work out, if the return to capital is 5% and the capital stock is six times the level of income, the capital share in output will be 30%. It's, um, it's really as simple as that. So you've just got to look at the capital-to-output ratio, multiply it by the rate of return on capital, and you'll get the capital share. So how can capital share increase? Well, if capital increases relative to output or the rate of return on output increases, the capital share will increase. And for that, means those people who are in capital will start to look richer than the rest of the population. And indeed, there's some evidence to suggest labour share, so what's not capital share would be labour share or land share, has been falling a little bit over time. That might suggest those who own capital have become richer. Um, But part of the reason for the fall in the labour share is this equalisation of real wages that I talked about at the beginning of the lecture. So So the point is it may have increased inequality in some degree in advanced economies where real wages have stagnated But at the same time, inequality may have fallen in the emerging economies for whom wages have increased as a share of income. So inequality of whom may be the question, rather than inequality per se. Um, Real rates and growth. So the the other argument made is um, if the real rate of return on capital is higher than the rate of growth of income, you'll get the process that I just outlined. If you've got a certain amount of capital and its rate of return is higher than income, the capital stock will increase relative to output. And because the rate of return is higher, the share of capital will also increase. Um, so the simple calculation is that if, if the return on capital is at 5% and growth falls to zero, uh, if you started with a given capital stock um, after a number of years, perhaps a century, the capital stock will then go to 80% of income. And those who own capital will have nearly all the income to themselves and there's very little left for wages. Um, But actually under standard theory, if growth is at zero, you'll only need to save as much as you have to for depreciation alone. So there won't be the need to reinvest in the capital stock um, that this simple calculation would imply. So it seems very unlikely that we're going to get to those levels of capital stock over the very long run. We've got UK data that gives us at least 200 years of analysis on this. The capital stock seems to look reasonably stable. um, And and the share of capital looks reasonably stable at around 30%. So I'm not too concerned about that problem. So the questions I open up without giving an answer is, is... ...if we really worry about capital dominance, in a sense then we have to ask some questions about taxing capital. On the other hand, if we think through stupidity, death or whatever else it might be that that regeneration will occur itself, then we don't have to worry about tax because inheritance won't replicate itself in in the things that people do in the next generation. Um, Education is of course both ex-anti-distribution and ex-post redistribution. It can help people even move within their lifetime to a different income level. So that might be something to think much harder about as an economy. Most of this analysis I'm talking about today doesn't look at the distribution of the middle in terms of how have they done compared to the past, and that's something which people haven't talked about. I've talked a few times about um, the impact of this whole process on the emerging economies, and there's a stylized fact here I want to bring to people's attention is that in the 20 years from 1990 to 2010, the fraction of people living below the poverty line of $1.25 per day in developing countries fell halved from 43 to 20 to 21%. This fall has taken nearly a billion people out of poverty, and the numbers are forecast to fall um, to below 10% by the end of this decade. Now, I don't know whether we should do it in terms of the representative agent having told you it's not a good idea... But that might not be a bad trade globally. Uh, If that means a little bit more inequality here has led to a massive change in inequality in other parts of the world, that may be something you want to accept. It may be something you don't want to accept. I'm open. I've got no decision. But think globally. Uh, There may be some um, interesting points to make. I've already made the point about these charts not showing the same people year after year. I'm now going to talk about the UK trends, which are slightly different. And they talked about casually but without people necessarily having looked at the results. And before doing that, I just want to remind you what a Gini coefficient is. Um, You can take that away um, with you. Um, So if you array the same households I've talked about from 0 to 100%, and you ask each of them as you go along the axis from 0 to 100%, what fraction of total income do you contribute? You, You add them up over time to get this blue line here if it's unequal but if every household contributed the same amount you'd move along the dotted line and we'd have perfect equality so in fact it's this area here that measures the amount of inequality and it's essentially A over A plus B that's the whole triangle this area here over A plus B gives you the amount of inequality if we were almost perfectly unequal with one person owning all the wealth then this blue line would be OO. 100%, it would be here, that line there. So, the next things I'm going to show, the next graph is going to show the Gini coefficients for the UK and give you an idea of of what has happened here. Um, This is data from Atkinson. This starts here in uh, about 1960. And we look at the Gini coefficient of the red line of um, household disposable income in its own terms, in real terms, and looking at the Gini coefficient. from 1960. and You can see we were at 25 and this is a number that ranges between naught and 100 so you can see relatively uh, equal and there was a large increase from 25 to 35 in the early 1980s and it's been stable since. I shan't say falling slightly, that seems inappropriate. These look to me insignificantly different from each other. So the interesting thing to me is that if they're There's been considerable talk about the increase in income inequality in the UK in the last few years. But what there has been actually happened quite strongly nearly 40 years ago, over 30 years ago. Maybe it's taken this much much time for us to realise it. Or maybe there are other measures we have to look at. Let's see what else we've got. We can look at the... um, This is the UK top income shares um, and we're just looking at the the top 1% in gross income and almost similarly to the Gini coefficient telling a a similar story you're seeing this falling or at least falling in the immediate post war period and again you're seeing in the um, throughout the 80s an increase from some 5% to 15% and subsequently a little bit of a fall but this large increase again happened in the 80s so beginning of this period um, towards the end of the 70s the top 1% of income had about 5% of income and then by the end of the 90s it was 15% quite a quite a rapid increase so maybe some of the inequality debate might be being best directed rather than the whole distribution maybe it's the people at the very top the very top sliver who seem to be pulling away rather than there being inequality across the board which is what the Gini coefficient is measuring. Remember, that's looking at the whole distribution. I'm just showing here the top percentile. Two different um, charts here. Um, the first one is, rather than income, is wealth. Wealth is permanent income. Um, you can see a long-run trend in fall. We can get the first measure of this in the 1920s. And the one top 1% held about 40% of wealth... In, uh, in the immediate period after World War I. And this has fallen as almost a trend, a slight blip here, but it's fallen from 40% to just over 15% over the 20th century. A remarkable reduction in the inequality of hell- wealth held by the top um, 1%. And slightly different measure, so I just want to go into a different space rather than wealth. If we look at... Um, fraction of households um, below 60% of the median. So if you take the median income, which is that point in the middle, and you take 60% of it, so we're looking at how many households are below that 60% of the median. And in, um, again, the immediate post-war period, like the Gini coefficient, it was low. There was an increase in the early 80s. as, it, as Remember the high levels of unemployment we had at that time? Well, I do, some of you may not have been born, um, high levels of unemployment driving up uh, the fraction of households under 60% of the median, from just over 10% to, nearly, uh, to over 20%, but you can see as, as employment levels have been relatively high in that subsequent period, it's fallen back to just over 15%. I'm not saying that's enough, I'm simply describing the trends here, I'm not making overall welfare statements. Um, and then if we look at the top decile as a percentage of the median, this is back to my point about the extremes, if we look at the top 10%, as how many more times than the median do they get paid? We look at 1950, they were getting about one and a half times the median, and by now they're over two times the median. So if you have got human capital, or you're lucky, or you inherit a firm from your mother, or father, whatever else it may be, you're now going to be pulling away from the median more than you did in the past. So I think the distribution is getting stretched as well as um, anything else. So, in summary, uh, if we're going to think about inequality, we need to think very hard about income shares that accrue to labour and income shares that accrue to capital and labour, I didn't put that on. Uh, and land, I should say. That, they're the things that, that, that really matter. Who owns the labour? What does it get as a return? Who owns capital? What is a return there? And also for land. And that kind of grey area of human capital. What are the returns to human capital and who gets them? That's where education can play a role. The inequality-irrelevance proposition is history, in the sense in which I think we all think distributions matter. We have to design policy and think about their distributional consequences, we can't ignore them. The simple example I showed you um, about the negative variances means that we have, if we think in terms of the aggregate alone, we'll be missing out important distributional consequences. We also don't think that risk sharing is perfect. This is a side point in a sense, but it does mean that macroeconomic models need to think about heterogeneity. Turns out if we want to understand the variance of consumption over time, this idea that there's a representative agent simply doesn't work. We need to have agents who are owners of capital and wealth and agents who are hand-to-mouth, those who only can consume what they earn in any one period. Without that, we can't understand the evolution of the macroeconomy. If we think about aggregate performance, it's going to mask considerable heterogeneity. um, And it's important that we get the story right. Um, But... The story is a complex one. The post-crisis change in inequality is very different at the national and the international level, point number one. If we look at the whole distribution, it's not clear through Gini coefficient analysis that income inequality has got worse. If we look at wealth alone, it doesn't either in the UK look like it's got worse there either. But there is some evidence that income accruing to the very top 10% and very top 1% has increased. That said, when we look at the middle of the distribution, the people who are a fraction of the median, things seem to have improved for them as well over the last few years. So we're not able to say that inequality um, has got worse. We can say to some degree. We can also say at the same time, maybe equality has also improved in some dimensions as well. It's a rather complicated picture. I wish I could give you a simple answer, but I'm not sure I'm able to today. So... Uh, I'd ask you to go away and think about these things as well. That's the only way we're going to get to an answer. Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.